over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the ways that Jesus came to redeem and transform our whole uh, lives, uh, and including, as we're going to attempt to look at this morning, how he came to redeem our brokenness and our vulnerability. Uh, when, it, when it comes to being honest, when it comes to making ourselves vulnerable, when it comes to being open about what's really going on with us, about the things that we struggle with, the things that we may be feeling deep down, um, many of us know that that's kind of how we'd really like to be living. We'd like to be living lives that are more honest. We'd like to be living lives and leading lives that are more vulnerable. We'd like to be doing life in a way that's a little bit more uh, real. But even though we may want to live life like that, certainly if you're anything like me, we find it like, incredibly hard to do. For me, this is one of the hardest things to do, which is why I'm so delighted that I'm preaching on this subject this morning. Um, I find making myself vulnerable incredibly difficult. It really doesn't come easily to me at all. Uh, why on earth would you show your weakness? Like, why would you do that? Like, willingly. Why on earth would you show your pain. Like, surely these are things that are supposed to be hidden. These are the things that you're supposed to bury. These are the things that you're supposed to cover up, like, is how I think about these things. And, 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 and for me, it's like, actually, what we ought to be doing is presenting only the very best version of ourselves to the people around us. Well, it may come as no great surprise that actually Jesus has a better way for us to do life than that. And um, one of the things that God has been teaching me, which I'm loving, is yes, you can certainly do all of that. You know, you can certainly conceal everything that's going on inside of you. You can pre present a facade. Uh, but, and it's a very big but, uh, it's not actually a really good idea. In fact, it's a, it's a terrible idea. So this morning, I want us to dig around the scriptures a little bit. We've, we're in for an awesome ride this morning. Um, you're going to love it, I'm telling you. Uh, and we're going to see what it might mean for us uh, to live more um, honest and open lives before God and before one another, in spite of all of our brokenness and pain. And I want us to look this morning at the life of one of Joseph's brothers, uh, Judah, and see uh, if and how this might help us a little bit. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 38. We're going to pick up the story. Basically, what's happened is, enraged by the favoritism that Joseph has been shown by their father, um, Jacob, Joseph's brothers, as you'll be familiar, you've all seen the musical, they first of all plot to kill him, and then they decide at the last minute, actually, no, let's just sell him into slavery, which is awesome, uh, amazing sibling rivalry. Uh, Jacob has now been told that Joseph has been killed, allegedly by some wild animal. And the story continues, that's in, verse, in chapter 37. In verse 30, chapter 38, it continues, but it focuses in on one of the brothers, and it focuses in on Judah, and that's where I want us to go this morning. So Genesis 38, um, verse 1. And let's just pray. We need the Lord desperately. Father, we thank you for your presence here, and we thank you for the scriptures. We ask that your presence would come. We ask that you would minister your truth to us. 
Lord, that your grace would just permeate this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 38, verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hirah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. Poor chap. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. So the context of all of this is here's uh, Judah, and you've got to remember his, his, his father's just found out that Joseph is, is, has been killed. And so there's a lot of grief in the family. And in the midst of all of this grief over the loss of Joseph, in the midst of what would have been like complete um, family chaos, Judah gets up and leaves. And he doesn't only just leave his family, but he leaves his country, this place that God has brought them into. And what he's doing, if you remember from last week, we were looking at the inheritance and the blessing. What he's actually doing is he's turning his back on the blessing and the inheritance that would have been his. And so we're kind of looking at Judah and we're going, okay, something's not right with you. Something's not going very well. You're not behaving in a way that's very healthy. And then you read on a bit more in the story and it sort of gets a bit worse because what Judah does is he marries a Canaanite woman. And we might look at that and say, you know, so what? It looks like he's having fun. There's a lot of pregnancies here. Um, But this is Judah basically in direct rebellion against God and God's law because God had said don't marry outside of Israel because uh, you will join in with their pagan gods. So Judah's not doing great. There's something going on with him. And then things get worse. Have a look at verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Um... I don't really want to spend much time here, apart from to say I have absolutely no idea what that's about, right? I'm not even going to begin to attempt to try and unpack that. I don't understand it. It sounds pretty horrific to me. Um, Your homework is to find out what the heck Ur did, right, that meant that God put him to death and what that even means, okay? That's not the point of the story. I know that you're all going to sit there going, what the heck? But um, that's your homework. Send me emails. Um, Anyway. Tamar, his wife, is now a widow. And according to custom, it falls to the other brother to look after her. Verse 8, it all gets worse. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up her offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. Uh, This is the verse that a lot of people use to say that God is really anti-masturbation, just for your um, information. Uh, Verse 10, uh, which is awesome, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. (laughs) I love the Bible. Um, your extracurricular homework for this weekend, this week, is to find out um, whether Onan really did get killed for masturbating, or, uh, and how come the rest of us are still alive, and um, what's actually going on there. 
Verse 11. Kate's away. <laughs> just, just don't tell her. <laughs> just don't tell her. I'm in serious trouble already. Okay, verse 11. Judah said to his daughter-in-law, I live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up, for he thought he may die too. <laughs> yes, I mean, everyone else seems to be getting killed, so that's a reasonable thought. He may die too, just like his brothers, so Tamar went to live in her father's household. Things are pretty terrible by anyone's standards. Um, Judah's sons have died. Um, actually, they've been killed by God. Uh, so Judah sends his daughter-in-law back to her father. And we might think, oh, well, this sounds like a sensible plan. But in that culture, this is an ultimate disgrace. Tamar was effectively Judah's daughter, so it was his duty to have her in her, his household to protect her and to care for her. But instead, what Judah does is he shirks his responsibility and he tells her to go home. What he's effectively doing is disowning her. And again, this is just not good. Then things get worse in verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. There's a lot of death, a lot of dying. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adullamite went with him. So Judah's wife has now died, and after the allotted grieving time, basically what he does is he goes out partying. Um, again, this is a cultural thing, but it was kind of like some sheep shearing after party that he's gone off to. And after the job, I know, who knew? After the job was done, all the guys would basically kick back and they would drink and they'd party and they'd sleep around. And the whole thing was pretty debauched. And Judah is right up front and center. And what he's doing is he's numbing all of his pain um, with anything and everything that he can lay his hands on. This is a man who's on the run from himself. And it is all unraveling. It is all getting a lot worse. Verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she's a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. Now, again, I have no idea what this is all about, right? This is just weird stuff to me. Uh, maybe this is her last-ditched attempt to get noticed by this family that's abandoned her. Maybe it's because all of her hope is gone. Uh, maybe it's an indication of just how utterly desperate and destitute she is. But basically, Tamar dresses as a prostitute. And of course, Judah, being the sleazeball that he is, sleeps with her. Uh, verse 16, she says, what will you give me to sleep with you? And he says, oh, I'll send you a young goat from my flock. And she says, will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? And he says, well, what pledge should I give you? And this is basically him saying, what can I give you? You know, I really want to sleep with you. What can I give you that's going to show you that I'm good for the money, that I will pay you? And she says in verse 18, uh, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her. And, of course, she becomes pregnant by him. After she left, she took off the veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So Judah, 
in all of this dysfunction, he's effectively what he's doing is he's giving away the things, that, the symbols of, that, that made him who he is, um, the things that show that he's actually a patriarch, the things that show he's a, a, a head of a family, and he trades it all for sex. Uh, verse 20, meanwhile Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he didn't find her. He asked the men who lived there, where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at her name? It's like, well, there haven't been any shrine prostitutes here, they said. So Judah thinks that he's sleeping with some shrine prostitute, which is what you would do to appease the gods, all of which he seems to be okay with. Again, indications that he's not doing very well. Verse 22, so he went back to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. Uh, beside the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. And then verse 23, then Judah said, well, let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughing stock, understatement. After all, I did send her the young goat, you know, so I've done everything I possibly can. You didn't find her. And then things get worse. Uh, verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah says, bring her out and have her burned to death. He's a nice guy. So now we're right in it. You know, judge not lest you be judged springs to mind, but not for Judah, not at all. He is so full of self-righteousness. He's so arrogant. He is so conceited. He is so blind to his own sinfulness and his own brokenness that he demands that she be burned, which is actually one up from even God's instruction that in this situation people should have been stoned to death. He's like, no, let's have a burnt. It's all pretty crazy. Um, and he is not coming out of this very well. He is not a, coming out as a nice guy. And to put it mildly, Judah's in a bit of a state. He's a liar. He's a betrayer. He's, a, he's rebellious. He's a sleazebag. He's slimy. He's got no regard for God. He's got no responsibility. He's a drunk. He's a sex addict. He, he's just not a good guy. And, you know, you can picture the scene here in this moment. Tamar's there, this young girl. She's pregnant. She's unmarried. She's fearing for her life. She's fearing for the life of her unborn child. And Judah, who is the real villain of this whole piece, is lording it over her, holier than now. He's oblivious to the fact that all of this has come about at his hand by his own doing. And then, of course, if it hadn't already, the story takes a spectacularly dramatic turn in verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And of course, they're his. It's his seal, his cord, his staff. And Judah is found out. He's utterly exposed. Okay, we'll get back to Judah in a minute. But what we're attempting to do this morning is trying to talk about living our lives in brokenness and vulnerability and how about being uh, honest and broken isn't really a place where many of us really kind of want to live and find ourselves and, and Judah in a very graphic kind of way gives us a pretty good idea of what brokenness looks like. Brokenness is a result of the sin that happens to us, it's the sin that's happening around us, it's the sin that happens through us, it's all of those um, unsightly things under the surface of our lives, the things about us that we wish no one uh, and we hope that no one 
else will ever find out or that no one else will ever know. And so it can be our compulsion to um, exaggerate. You know, it can be our secret desire to please everybody. It's our addiction to porn. Um, it's the things that we're doing or saying or the way that we're acting that have become the ways in which we've learned how to cope with our stuff and our sin and our pain. And so um, for me, it's like my sarcasm. Uh, for me, it's sort of the way I kind of intimidate other people. Um, for some people, it's bullying. For some people, it's their condemnation of others, where they focus on other people's sin so that we never have to focus our own sinfulness. Um, it's the things that we've never actually had control of in the first place, that we don't know what to do with, because they're just these powerful and feelings and emotions inside of us, things like our anger and our rage and our loneliness and our resentment or whatever it may be. We just want to keep all of that hidden and buried because we don't know what to do with it. And so, actually, not too unlike Judah, uh, we're all pretty broken. We're all pretty messed up. And the question is, what are we doing about it? And uh, more often than not, the church, interestingly enough, but the church is made up of people who would much prefer, we would much rather conceal our brokenness than to show it. And so typically uh, in churches, and especially I think in churches, there's at least a couple of reactions to our brokenness. And the first thing that we do is we run. We run from it. Um, we're desperate to avoid you know, all those unsightly parts of our lives, as I was saying, and we want to avoid them at all possible costs. And, you know, that's what Judah's doing here at the sheep shearing party. Um, you know, the, his wife has just died. Everything's going pear-shaped for him. He just literally goes off and goes on a massive binge. You know, he goes off and he gets drunk and he sleeps around. Um, he's trying to mask and numb the pain and run away from everything that he really ought to be facing up to. Um, I do this all the time. Um, when life gets hard, which it does frequently, um, my natural instinct, my natural inclination is to try and fix it. Like, so I'm a fixer. I can fix things. I can solve problems. And I can, I can fix things. That's kind of what I do. But then um, when I can't fix it, which happens like more often than not, um, and I don't know what to do about it because life is too hard, even for me. I, I find myself feeling like all these deep-seated emotions, all of this stuff just kind of churns around inside, and I'll start to feel like anger and resentment and frustration. What's interesting about that is most of all in that situation, what I'm feeling is, um, is shame. And the reality for me is that in that situation, I'm actually ashamed um, that I don't have what it takes to fix the problem. Um, but rather than even remotely begin to admit any of that to myself, and certainly not to anybody else, uh, what I do is I will find small consolations and comforts to um, mitigate against that pain. And so uh, and I'm, when I'm in that situation, I'll, I'll watch more, or I'll withdraw more, I'll cut myself off, I'll separate myself away, or I'll eat more, or I'll spend more, or I'll touch more, or I'll get more, or whatever more it takes to help that pain go away. 
And all of these things, they're designed to make us feel better, and they're designed to medicate us uh, through the pain that we're going through. But instead of facing my brokenness, what I do is I, I run from it. And what we do is we numb ourselves you know, with the endless supply of things, places, and people that are all within our fingertips and our grasp. And each one of us will do that in a different way. Another response that we have to our brokenness is we hide. So we run and we hide. And, and honestly, nearly, uh, nearly all of us do this a lot, if we're honest. We hide our brokenness. We hide the unsightly things in our lives. You know, we think that we can cover up the brokenness in our lives. And if we can do that, then life will actually be uh, a lot better just if nobody else ever finds out about it. And so what we do is we bury it all and we present a side of ourselves that puts our best uh, face and facade on display, you know, the bits that we find acceptable. Um, And that's basically, I think, what most of social media is about. Uh, Social media, you know, in no small part is, here's me, but not really. Um, Social media, a lot of social media is really just some strange narcissism, you know, sort of thinly veiled and disguised as self-expression. And a lot of it, I think, is because I don't really know where I fit in. Um, A lot of it actually is because deep down I'm incredibly insecure. So what we do is we say, check out my page, check out my posts, and have a look at all the people that I know, and look at all the places that I go, and see how beautiful my life is, and see how happy I am all the time, uh, because that's what people present. And so what we're doing is we're creating a persona that we know ourselves, we know that it's fake, and everyone else around us knows that it's fake. Um, And we do it because we don't know how to be real. We just don't know how to be honest. And even though, this is the bizarrest thing about all of this, is one of our deepest desires for most of us is we desire to be truly known. We long to be seen for who we really are. Um, But even though that's one of our core desires, we don't ever show the real me. I never show the real me. And the reason I don't do that is because, honestly, I don't think anyone will like it. And the reason I don't think anyone else will like it is because I don't like it myself. And so we don't let anybody in because it's too dangerous, it's too risky. And so all we do is we try and control and hide all of this unseemly stuff so that we won't be exposed, so that we won't end up like Judah. And as a result, we end up feeling really, really, really lonely, which is really, really, really sad. Okay, that said... um, The weirdest thing about Judah's story, well, another weird thing about Judah's story, is that after all of this, after all of this carnage and all of this brokenness, all of this pain and all of this sin, things end up going well for him. After this whole car crash of an incident, things go well for Judah, and Judah gets blessed. Um, At the end of Jacob's life, the father, Jacob gathers all his sons together. You know, he had 12 sons. He gathers all the ones together, and he blesses them. And and you look through that section of the Bible, and you read through the blessings, and some of them you're like, oh, okay, is that it? Um, Not actually sure that's a blessing, um, but all right, I'll take it. Um, But Judah's blessing is like insane. It's off the charts in comparison to everybody else. No one gets a blessing like Judah. Here Here is what Judah gets. 
Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? This is the important bit. This bit here, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is the guy who gave his staff away. The ruler's staff will not depart from beneath his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. That's talking about Jesus. And his blessing goes on. And we're like, hold on a second, time out. Now we're talking about the same guy. You know, do we know who this chap is? Judah gets that blessing. Ur and Onan got flipping killed. And Judah gets this blessing. This does not seem very fair. Is it fair to bless this seriously broken guy? And as I said, not only is this an awesome blessing, this is a promise that Jesus, the Messiah, will come through the line of Judah. Judah's right there in Jesus' lineage in Matthew chapter 1. Judah of all people, this broken, messed up, nasty piece of work, is in the line of Christ. We're like, what? Let's just go back to Judah and Tamar. Um, so just go back to that moment where Judah is found out, when all of his brokenness and all of his sin is exposed. I think there's something in here that's interesting. Because in that moment, Judah doesn't run and Judah doesn't hide. What he does is he gets real. Have a look at verse 26. Judah recognized them. This is the, you know, the seal and the cord and the staff. And he says, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he didn't sleep with her again. And there's something pivotal in this for Judah. And um, I think what's happening here is we're beginning to see that what he's doing here is he's actually taking full responsibility for everything that has happened. He's starting to own his stuff. He's basically saying, because I didn't do what was right, because I did what was wrong, she is more righteous than I. And he is bang on right about that. And for the first time, Judah begins to get real about what he's done, about where he's at. And the reason I think it's a pivotal moment is because very bizarrely, um, when you start to read the rest of the Genesis story, there's this, again, bizarre twist. All of a sudden, throughout the rest of Genesis, we start seeing Judah's name like cropping up all over the place after that encounter and that response. From this point on, though, what's interesting is the way Judah is described, it's like a whole different story. It's like a whole different guy. Wherever um, Joseph's brothers are mentioned, for the rest of Genesis, it says, Judah and his brothers went here. Judah and his brothers went there. Judah and his brothers went to see Pharaoh. And what the writer of Genesis is trying to tell us, I think, is that Judah has become uh, like a leader. Judah has changed. And we're like, what? Like, how, why, when, where, hold on, like, stop. I just don't get this at all. And I think it's because he's faced up to who he was and what was going on with him, and he chose 
to be transformed as a result of it. Um, you see it later, when all of the brothers go um, to Egypt, they're going to get food because of the famine. It's Judah who says to Jacob, his father, I will take the blame if anything happens to Benjamin. You know, Benjamin's the youngest son. He's the new favorite after Joseph has been taken. And, and Judah is here now saying, if anything happens to Benjamin, let the blame be on me. Uh, and then later on in the story, they're all before Joseph. You know, he's like prime minister of Egypt, and they're in trouble. Benjamin's life is at risk of being thrown into an Egyptian prison. What does Judah do in that moment? Judah says, let me be thrown into prison instead of Benjamin. Let me take his place. Let his punishment be on me. And we're like, who the heck is this guy, and where did he come from? This is the same guy who at the beginning of the story sold his other brother into slavery. Uh? Judah has been transformed, like radically changed, radically transformed. And here he's now saying, let the hurt be on me so that he can go free. And now, rather than selling his own brother, Judah is offering himself in his stead, in his place. Why did Judah get the blessing? Um, I think Judah got the blessing because Judah actually, in some bizarre way, here is showing that he's like a type of Christ. He acted like Christ. He was willing to die for his brother, to step into his place, to take the blame that was meant for someone else onto himself, which is exactly what Jesus has done for every single one of us, substituting himself for us, taking the punishment that we deserved for our sin onto himself. And so at the end, Judah, wow, turns out to be an example not of brokenness and of pain and of sin, but of honesty and integrity and courage. And we're like, wow, how did that happen? Okay, so what does any of this have to do with us? Right, well, first of all, I think the story, Judah's story shows us that brokenness kept inside destroys us. You know, when we keep our sin and our brokenness a secret, it suffocates us. Um, think back over what was going on with Judah. You know, the entire narrative of his life is essentially pretty much one bad decision after another. He's hurt over his father's favoritism. He runs away from pain. He avoids having to face any of it as best he possibly can. Then he gets angry about it all. He ends up hurting other people because of it. And everything in his life just keeps spiraling and, and getting worse and snowballing. It's just awesome. Awful. But we also need to understand, I think, that Judah is not just acting randomly. Judah believes that this is who he is. So Judah has grown up with the belief that he was worthless. Judah believed that his father didn't, just didn't love him. And all of this subsequent anger and rage that we see in his life was actually birthed in Judah in massive hurt and pain. Judah was really, really hurt. Which I think is why, because he's trying to fix the pain. He's a bit of a fixer. Uh, the way to fix his father's favoritism was to sell his brother. Bit of a radical fix, but it's a fix. 
And then when that doesn't work, he's like, okay, well, that hasn't, that hasn't fixed things. So now I'm going to leave home. I'm going to, I'm going to get away from the pain. But the pain is too deep. And so that doesn't fix it. And so then he starts to do things. He begins to do things that he would never have imagined would have been possible for him. And he kind of grows um, more and more ashamed as each day passes. And so often it's the thing that holds us in our brokenness is our shame. That's what keeps us there. And, and the shame is when we start believing that what we do or what we've done actually defines who we are. It's that's who I am. I am bad. I am this. I am that. And our brokenness then begins to dictate our way of life. So because I believe that I'm worthless, because I deep down believe I have nothing to give, I will do anything I possibly can to get your affirmation trying to get you to validate me somehow because I have no sense of self-validation or validation from anywhere else. Uh, because I believe that I have nothing of value to say, I'll say nothing. And so people think I'm just shy. This isn't true of me, but it could be true of you. So people might just think I'm shy, but actually I'm just ashamed because I've got nothing to say. Um, this is true of me uh, because I'm convinced that I'm just too much for people. Uh, I think I'm, I'm probably too loud or too opinionated or too whatever. Um, actually, that's covering up what is, for me, um, a deep insecurity. But because I can't do vulnerability and I can't do weakness, I can't tell you that. So don't tell anyone. It's a secret. Um, so what I'll do is I'll just keep shouting at the world, the world and, and everybody else that happens to be passing. When we keep all of this truth about the way that we feel, about the things that are going on inside, about the, and the brokenness that we're in, when we keep it all from God and we keep it all from the people around us, slowly but surely all of this stuff kills us. This is what the psalmist David says about what happens to him when he kept his sin from God and from people. Psalm 32 verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. That's the intensity of it. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Trying to contain our brokenness and our sin slowly but surely kills us. And it stops us from becoming all that we could and we have been called to be. What we learn, I think, from Judah is that when we make ourselves vulnerable, when we hit that pivotal moment, when, what we learn from the life of David is that when we open ourselves up, before God and one another, um, like Judah, we then get to become the very best version of ourselves. You see, it's because of the cross of Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with God's grace. And so when our fears and our brokenness and our thoughts and our hopes and our dreams are all out there on the table and they are all laid at the foot of the cross, that's the moment, that's the point, that's the place where we get loved for who we really are, for who we truly are, not just merely some smoke screen or persona that we've worked so hard to curate. And this is a journey the Lord has had me on over the past year or so, and um, it has been, and it is, brutally painful. It is extraordinarily painful uh, for me. Um, but what's been fascinating is where I thought I would experience rejection, 
uh, I have actually encountered grace. Where I thought that if I let some of that stuff about who I am out to the surface, if I brought that on and put that on the table before the Lord and before other people, where I thought I would then be kept at a distance, I've actually experienced a depth and an intimacy in some of my relationships that I've never known before. What I thought was weakness is actually, by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, is actually being turned into one of the greatest strengths. And our job as the church is to create a safe place for us to all come out of hiding. Uh, it's to create a place, to be a place that is so ruled by grace that anyone can be honest. Our job as a church is to make Judas feel welcomed. We are to take the abundant grace of the gospel that has been so freely lavished on every single one of us by God in his kindness and his mercy, and we are to demonstrate that same abundant grace to every single Judah who walks through these doors. We are to embody the gospel that says, yes, the wages of sin is death, and, and, at the very same time and in the very same breath, let everyone know that you are so loved by your heavenly Father that God, in and through the person of Jesus Christ, has paid those wages for you so that you can have life. Because whether we're honest enough to admit it or not, the truth is we're all a lot like Judah. We might want to judge him. We might want to condemn him. We might want to distance ourselves from him. But there's a lot in his story that actually is our story too. The question I think for us is about where are we on the time frame of his life? Are we broken and bitter? Are we running from our pain? Are we hiding from our pain? Or are we stepping into the fullness of our true calling as sons and daughters of the king who would lay down their lives for the people around them? Very, very finally, how might we do all of this? Um, the first thing is... Start by getting honest with God. Start by getting honest with God. Tell him how you feel in every situation. Tell him that you don't understand how a loving God can kill Ur and Onan for what seems like some random thing. Tell him that. Tell him how angry that makes you. Tell him how enraged that makes you feel. Tell him how that really fundamentally affects your ability to trust him and have faith in him. Tell him. Get honest with God about that. Tell him about your anger. Tell him about your lust. Okay. Tell him about your hopes and your dreams. Tell him about your disappointments and your heartaches. Tell him. Be honest with him. That's the first thing. We need to learn to get honest with God. Uh, secondly, um, we need to start getting honest with one another. Um, find somebody who loves you. Um, look for someone who is for you. Seek out someone who will champion you and not condemn you. See some, uh, find someone who can see through where you are to who you are becoming. Find someone who can see prophetically God's call on your life, right? 
as they can be faith, they can have faith for you and champion you through that. And then begin to share your heart with them. Now, take it slowly at first. This might just be my insecurity, but um, dump this if it's just loaded with my rubbish. Um, my counsel would be take it slowly at first. Uh, build up trust, like invest time with them, and slowly but surely make the decision and make the choice that you are actually going to voluntarily and intentionally peel back the layers of your heart. And then finally, the third thing is, um, if someone is brave enough to be honest with you, if someone is, has the courage to share their heart with you. Please, 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 honor that gift that they've given you. Um, recognize that their, their, their vulnerability and their trust uh, for what it is. It's like an incredibly brave step. And in that moment, it's like you, they've offered you their heart. Like literally, they've just reached into their rib cage and ripped out their heart and put it into your hands. And in that moment, you can do whatever you want. You have been empowered. They've trusted you, entrusting their heart into your hands. And you can do whatever you want with that. Can I please encourage us all as a fellowship of believers to hold their heart the way that Jesus would hold their heart? Can I encourage us? to hold their heart the way we would want our hearts to be held. Show them the grace that we would wish to receive. And above all, in that moment, be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's open the doors and welcome the Judas in. Both the Judas that are already here and the Judas that are yet to come. Why don't you stand? And we'll have the band back.